Welcome to The Expert Speak, a product of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thank you for listening. Tonight's session is done in conjunction with the Palm Beach County Medical Society. As the coronavirus pandemic continues, the term herd immunity keeps coming up. And now that there is considerable movement to reopen parts of our society, this concept has gained increased importance. We must understand it. Dr. Larry Bush specializes in infectious diseases, and he is kind enough to explain this concept to us. Dr. Bush, thank you so much for being with us. Sure, my pleasure. Thanks for asking me. There are so many concepts being bantered about now that we need to at least to start to really understand some of them that we can basically understand what's important and what are the important clinical nuances as we talk about immunity and testing and the like. Let me start with a question. If it's too simplistic, please just expand on it. Is it overly simplistic to say that herd immunity means that a person cannot transmit the disease but that other people could still be susceptible to to the disease from another source. So the larger herd itself is not completely immune, but the transmission is significantly mitigated. Is, is that fair or is it too complicated? That sounds correct. Herd immunity means that you have protection antibodies in your body, either ones that were given to you early in life by your mother during utero or from breastfeeding or antibodies in you that you've built up because you've been exposed to an infectious agent before, have combated it successfully and now are protected against it, or you have antibodies or other immune system actors that were given to you passively by gamma globulin that we're hearing about, convalescent gamma globulin or IgG. And the last one would be immunization where we do active immunization and we actually reproduce the infectious agent in you and you develop antibodies. So that is immunity. Herd immunity means that there's a large portion of the population who has that type of immunity one way or another and therefore can't get infected and therefore cannot transmit the disease. So the more people that are, for instance, with measles vaccinated, even if there's a few cases of measles that would enter the country, it can't really catch on to anybody because we've been vaccinated, so we can't transmit it. Transmission rate of an infection that you may see written as the RO, big letter R, small number O, means how many people will one infected, actively infected person transmit this to? So for COVID-19, the estimate is 2 to 2.5, meaning every infected person would transmit it to somebody who's not immune, at least two or two and a half of them they would transmit it to. Now, those two and a half would transmit it to two or two and a half, and you can see how it really exponentially increases. So the more people who recover from this or who asymptomatically have it but never knew they had it, they can't get infected, and the transmissibility number declines. The common question is, at what number is it safe to open yes, things up? Yes, yes. And the number that epidemiologists are looking for is a number of one, because, for instance, influenza, normal yearly influenza, has an RO of about 1.7. This is double that. If we can get to one, and that can be statistically calculated, and it is felt, if you still do correct things as far as transmissibility, covering your cough and your sneeze, washing your hands, etc., then this will decline drastically. So that's the concept of herd immunity. There has been in the lay literature a mixture of the terms resistance and immunity. Are those clinically different concepts, or is that just a matter of the reporter misusing the terms? 
They're, they're misusing term. Resistance means your body will resist active infection either because there's something about you that does not let the organism attach or enter, or you have antibodies or other immune defenses that if it does attach, it can be eliminated rapidly and not create active infection. Let me give an example. The HIV virus attaches to a receptor on our T lymphocyte. Some people genetically don't carry that receptor, and therefore you could even transfuse positive HIV blood into them and they could not become actively infected because the receptor required for the virus to take hold, they don't have. In a Darwinian theory, if nothing we had to do that affects HIV, the people who would be left standing at the end of the day would be those people who cannot become infected, so-called survival of the fittest. That's the same concept of resistance. Immunity means that for some way, the ones I mentioned before, you've developed protection and therefore even if the virus can enter you, you can win the battle. Interesting. One of the things that is discussed every day in the news, and it's very confusing and it's very disheartening at times when we hear about testing that is not available or perhaps not accurate. I know somebody who had an antibody test recently and now it's thought to be false negative. So where shall we even begin? What's more important, testing to see if someone has the presence of the virus or to wait and test for antibodies? I mean, they're both important. I didn't mean to say one's not important. Important, but your concept, your thoughts about that. That's a great question. So let's think of testing like this. If, if you're a teacher and you give a test to students, what's on that test are questions. And when you think of testing, that's it. You're asking a question. So the first thing we have to think about with testing for COVID is what is the question that we're asked? What answer are we looking to obtain that's going to help us, help you, you meaning the general community of the world, the pandemic? So what's the question we're asking? There's two kind of tests. An infectious disease is the way you define an active infection besides signs and symptoms is either isolating the organism and routinely for bacteria, for instance, if you do a, a urine culture, you can isolate the organism, or by looking for a response that shows that you have been involved with that organism, and we call that antibodies. Viruses, we don't routinely culture in a regular clinical lab. That's a research lab. You can't order a viral culture most of the time. Sometimes you can, but it's, it's cumbersome. So testing, we do indirectly by looking for a part of the virus, and that's the swab test. We're looking for PCR. PCR is the name of the test. What we're really looking for is the genetic material, in this case, RNA of the virus. So if you swab somebody's nasopharynx or their nose or their back of the throat, and if the virus is lying there, which it would be because it enters via the respiratory tract, you can take a small particle of that RNA and you can amplify it. And that's what the PCR is, a polymerase chain reaction. That's the actual chemical test that amplifies the viral RNA so you can detect that it's there. So what you're doing with that is indirectly finding, yes, this patient, this person is carrying virus in the back of their throat or their nose. But the next question is, is it active? Is it actually actively replicating that it could be transmitted and cause them to be ill or can they spread it? Well, some people, it may be replicating in a low-grade fashion and they are so-called asymptomatic. Other people, it's replicating in a low-grade fashion and although they don't have symptoms they can transmit it. And then there's the people who are actively infected and they can transmit it. So the first question is, is it there and is it being transmitted? Is it really viable? That's our test. So when we talk about looking for convalescent tests, you've treated a patient, they get better, 
they come back to your office two weeks later or the hospital and you swab them again and there's still detectable RNA by the swab PCR test, that still doesn't answer the question, are they transmissible? You know they're better. They say, I feel great. But can they transmit it? You'd have to actually grow the virus to know if it's viable. So that's direct PCR RNA testing or swabs. The second question we ask is, well, did you develop antibodies? And the way we could use the antibody test is, A, if you have antibodies, that implies you were in contact with this virus. And if you say, I have no symptoms, then we would say, well, you were an asymptomatically infected person. And that's an important number epidemiologically, but not actively, because there's nothing you're going to do with that patient differently. Epidemiologically, it's important because at the end of this epidemic, we could say, how many people were actually infected but never had any illness? And that's the denominator, how many infected people. And the reason that's important is because it lets you know the real mortality rate. You can only know the mortality rate by knowing how many people died, well, that's easy to count, versus how many people were actually infected. That's not easy to count because most of them won't have had symptoms. That's the antibody. But the but what I'm seeing in the news about the antibody is if we test you for IgG, for instance, that's the later antibody, that means you're immune. Well, that's not necessarily true. You could still have active RNA in the back of your throat. Lots of viruses you have antibodies to right in the middle of infection. So that will give a false sense of security. If I tested you for antibodies and they were there and you said to me, does that mean the virus is gone and I can't transmit it? The answer would be I'd have to do a RNA PCR swab. So the antibody testing is useful. It can tell us how many people are infected, how many were infected, but it can't tell you whether you still can spread it. And therefore, it really can't mitigate against spread. If you're asymptomatic, most likely you're less likely, if at all likely, to spread. I hope that's not too complicated. No, it's not complicated. It's fascinating. It's critical information we need to have. From an infectious disease perspective and from an epidemiologic perspective, how do the medical professions declare the pandemic to be over? What's the measure? By definition, you know, the pandemic it means upon the people, and it means upon the people globally as opposed to just an epidemic in a localized geographic area. The way we know it's over, you can never say it's over. And when I tell people, they say, well, when will it be safe to relieve all these restrictions? And my answer is if we're looking for zero risk, it will never be safe. It sort of intrigues me when people say we'll have a second wave in the fall. That would imply that there's low-grade transmission that will constantly go on, and if we take our foot off the pedal, so to speak, and open up the whole country, suddenly it will explode again. Well, that's not true because we're going to start developing herd immunity. Or it would also imply that it's a latent virus and it can lay dormant in a patient and then reactivate later. Well, that doesn't happen with coronaviruses or respiratory viruses. That happens with things like herpes or varicella zoster, chickenpox, or HIV. This is not a dormant virus. So the way we're going to know that things are really are now safer is like when I said, when that transmissibility gets to one or below, because then you can still do smart, protective things, but not to the draconian method, so to speak, that we're doing now where it's all or none. Somewhere you have to start lessening up, understanding there's still risk, and assess the risk by is there a bump in the new cases. I could tell you over the past several days, the percent of new cases every day has either stayed totally flat or is dropping. That implies that the transmissibility is dropping. There's less transmission because if the percent of new cases every day is not rising, and that's in the face of doing a lot more tests. So 
we're testing a lot of people now. So then when you see that the number of new cases every day is around the same, both in the country and less so in Florida. Florida, it's dropping even fast. When you see that, what you know is, is the transmissibility is dropping either because what we're doing is working or because more and more people are becoming herd immune. I think it's a combination of both. When that number also gets to a certain number, the epidemiologist will say, statistically, we can start loosening up. And that's the so-called three phases. The, the reason to keep people who are more apt to get very ill, people who are elderly or people with compromised immune systems or comorbidities are not more likely to cut in contact with the virus or get contagious with it. What that means is the way their body will react to it will be more severe and they're more likely to have more lung damage and die. A diabetic's not more likely to get coronavirus or a smoker or a patient with chronic lung disease or any of those things. But it means if they do get infected, they won't do as well as somebody else. An interesting and critical point. I am hoping that I'm telling people correctly that this is only transmissible through where there's a mucous membrane. A patient came up to me and said, I have a cut on my arm. If someone with coronavirus sneezes and it goes on the open wound, can I get it through that or does it have to go through where there's a mucous membrane, like in the nose? It has to go through a mucous membrane because the receptor, like I said, for HIV attaches to a certain receptor on our T lymphocyte. The coronavirus attaches to a certain receptor in your respiratory tract, not on your skin or any other place. So anything that can get it into your respiratory tract. Now, there are some case reports that it's shed in stool and maybe it can be shed that way. The first SARS virus, remember this is called SARS-2 because it's a very similar to SARS-1 in 2003. The first SARS virus and the MERS virus seem to have some receptors in the gastrointestinal tract also. That's why MERS, for instance, the second novel coronavirus, provided more diarrhea uh, symptoms. This one, some people have diarrhea, so there may be some receptors in the gastrointestinal tract. But for all intents and purposes, it's a respiratory transmitted disease. And the reason why touching somebody or touching a surface is because we then touch our nose and our mouth and we can get it into our respiratory tract. But your example of somebody has a cut and somebody sneezed on it, I wouldn't worry about the secretions from the sneeze getting on the cut. I would worry about you inhaling it. Thank you for that. We also hear, obviously, a lot of work, a a lot of work is being done on vaccines, and I applaud the people who are researching. But one of the things that I have heard bantered about is that this virus seems not to be mutating very much, which by a lot of people's understanding means that once a vaccine is developed, we expect it to be like measles. You get it once in your life because the measles doesn't mutate. Is that fair thinking? No, that's fair thinking. If this virus genetically stays stable, then the vaccine you make will protect against this strain of virus, which is causing the pandemic. And the hope is, is that that immunity is protected because not all vaccines produce protective immunity. That's why we can't make a successful vaccine for herpes virus or HIV virus. We can induce antibodies. Everybody with herpes has antibodies, but they're not protective as far as keeping it from reactivating. Same thing for HIV. So you need to first develop immunity that's effective in suppressing this or preventing it from patient acquiring it and then hoping that that immunity lasts forever. 
We found out that for measles, that didn't occur, and that's why we give a booster of measles to children when they enter middle school, although they got it as as a toddler. So hopefully we have an effective vaccine that lasts for a long time, and even the best-case scenario would be it protects you against potential future coronaviruses because there will be other novel coronaviruses as long as globalization in the world. All you need is an animal virus to connect with an intermediate animal and then humans to be around the animal. That's how the flu season changes every year. If we can do that, the vaccine will be effective, but that's not going to be the quick response to this pandemic. That takes a long time to develop and prove it's effective and prove that it lasts. In my mind, what we're going to need is a very effective antiviral medication that can be simply given like we do Tamiflu. And that's what's being worked on now. Many of the other medications being talked about now don't necessarily have direct activity on the virus. They mitigate the body's response to the virus, what we call the inflammatory reaction. I think the more likely scenario is we have a Tamiflu, Oseptamivir-like drug that is effective against coronavirus. I certainly hope so, and I wish the research all the best of being inquisitive and a little bit of lucky here and there and just hard work. I I don't know if I ever told you, but I, I was very lucky in medical school when I got to meet Sabin, Dr. Sabin of the Sabin polio vaccine. Oh, sure. I mean, he met thousands of students, but nonetheless, I got to shake his hand a few times. And I remember he was talking about the really important need for society to understand public health, viruses, changes, and as the world became more global, and it was almost as if this good man predicted the future a little bit. I just had to pass that on to you and to everyone that these concepts and these worries are not new. They're not new. Oh, absolutely not. And uh, there's a lot of reason why we're going to see more and more pandemics. And and some of them are reasons that are, it's the side effect of things that are good. It depends how you look at globalization. But with globalization comes the spread of infections. It's just, it's inevitable. The bacteria, viruses, fungi, parasites, they were here well before us. And they're going to be here forever. So we have to be able to get along with them, so to speak, as simple as that sounds. I thank you for this condensed but very valuable overview of what's going on, the notion of herd immunity. And we should end, obviously, by people not becoming too cavalier and still be protective, trying to be prudent, just not ignore everything that we've learned. No, I, and I appreciate the opportunity to, to speak with you.